Would you pray with me as we look at scripture this morning? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're, we're gathered together in a public place to worship you, to hear from you, to acknowledge your presence and your leadership in our lives. Uh, in the midst of incredibly busy lives, Lord, we come and we create this space because we want to know you more, we want to love you more, we want to be loved by you, and we want to hear from you. So open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear uh, what you see in here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're glad to have you all here today. My name's Michael. If I haven't met you, I'd love to say hello uh, before you leave today. Come and find me and say hi. We're starting a new conversation this morning called Going Public. And we've been wrestling with it all summer as a teaching team to try to think about how do we help the Mill City community engage with the craziness of the November election and all the public discourse that's happening seems like every turn I don't know some of you have on your phone like I'll flip to the news app and like every one of them is some crazy political thing or another telling me about the latest thing that I absolutely have to know about that happened six hours from the last time I checked um, it's a it's a tense culture at the moment and we wanted to be up front and say how can we think about living as public disciples, public followers of Jesus in ways that actually follow Jesus. So how did Jesus enter the public space? How did he engage publicly in his ministry? And how is God inviting us in 21st century to also engage publicly as followers of Jesus Christ? So for the next couple of months, we're gonna be exploring different practices of Jesus and other leaders of how they engaged with public issues in space. And we're gonna to try to reflect together, what does that mean for us? How can we be, in the next couple of months, in a very real way, how can we be followers of Jesus in the public sphere? So we're calling it going public. I think it seems to me particularly difficult to be a Christian these days. It's particularly difficult to be a lot of things these days, but including being a Christian. And I tried to articulate for myself, why does it seem like it's hard to be a Christian in the public sphere right now? Here's a couple of reasons I came up with. One is just that the public conversations are really tense, aren't they? Don't they seem tense all the time? There's a lot of emotion tied up in talking about the issues that we're facing in public, no matter what the issue is. And there's lots of public conversations taking place in spaces where you're not actually face-to-face -face with anyone. And so public conversations are now taking place in ways that are, I think, dramatically different than if you're sitting down across from another human being and you're having to interact with them. People are saying things and saying things in ways uh, that are really different than if they were more interpersonal in nature. So conversations are really tense, I think. Two, some people are really afraid of offending anybody else. So they're really, really cautious about what they say. Other people don't seem to care at all if they offend other folks, right? And there's, um, there's space in between there, but there's some, the, the figuring out if you're gonna offend somebody is a big part of how to engage in the public sphere and people are taking different routes and trying to, trying to see how they're supposed to do that. Uh, in general, most of the stats say that the public opinion of Christians is poor. 
So some of the research that's been done say most people would say the first things that come to mind when they think of Christians in the public sphere, like I asked you to talk about during the community time, is hypocritical and judgmental. That's, that's the first instinct response for lots of people when they say, what do you think of Christians and Christians engaging in public discourse? They're hypocritical and they're judgmental. And finally, um, some Christians are embarrassed to even admit they're a Christian in the public space because they don't want to be associated with the ways other Christians are behaving in the public space. Anybody experience that? So people want to say, it's not that I'm afraid to say I'm a Christian, but I don't want to say it and be associated with the craziness of this, that, or the other person who's also calling themselves a Christian. I want to nuance it a little bit, right? Give me a chance to explain myself. Uh, and I think there's a lot of those folks in our community here at Mill City. So for all those reasons, the public conversations are tense. People are afraid of offending or not afraid of offending. The public opinion of Christians is poor, and people are embarrassed to admit they're Christians in some ways for different reasons. That's the landscape. Doesn't, doesn't seem so great, right? I think that's why it's hard. If you're experiencing it as hard, those are some of the reasons why. So my question for this morning that I think we'll be wrestling with for a while is, how do we, how is God inviting us as followers of Jesus to publicly engage? Okay? What if we were going to be good? What if we were going to improve? What if we were going to ask God to help us grow in the ways that we publicly engage, both as individuals and as a church? What would that look like? So we're going to try and answer that question by looking at some of the practices of Jesus and how Jesus engaged the world in a public way. So we're going to start with a story in John chapter 2, which uh, most people would say is one of Jesus' first public acts when he turns this water at a wedding party into a lot of wine, not a little bit of wine, a lot of wine. And I'm going to explain that to you in a second. First, I want you to tell you, as Jesus is entering this public sphere, he's been... He's been um, following in his dad's footsteps. He's been working as a carpenter. And there's this transition in scripture where we start to see him as a rabbi gathering disciples and starting to intentionally engage publicly, teaching publicly, witnessing publicly, healing people publicly, advocating for folks publicly, doing all sorts of things in public space that starts to draw attention, both good and bad, to himself. Uh, I did some research this week to find out what, what, what were the politics of this time really like? Because I was curious. Was it totally different than what we have now? Or was it similar or what? So Jerusalem and the surrounding area is in the Roman Empire at this time. There are about 60 million people in the Roman Empire from Europe to the Middle East to North Africa. 60 million people. There's roughly 250 to 300 million people in the world at that time. Okay, So about 20% of the people in the world live in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is structured intentionally so that the top 1% to 3% of the people in the empire benefit from all the resources. There is no middle class like there, there is now. It's different from now. There's no middle class. You're either really poor and you're in the 97% or you're really wealthy and the whole system is built so that the resources funnel to you. So Rome has these different cities 
where they would uh, rule through other people and they would send money and taxes back to Rome and those rulers were subject to the, to, to the root rulers in Rome and they also had people that worked for them. So you get to the story of Jesus' life, that's the context that he's in. He has uh, Pilate as the Roman representative of the local area, he's like the governor of that area. And then there's Herod, who's the, the Jewish leader, who's doing his best to play politics, keep the Jewish people happy so he has his power, so he can then lend that power to Pilate and benefit from it. So as you read about it and you think about it, and there's a lot more I could say, it, it actually sounds uh, pretty much the same as what we got going on now. You have people in, some people in power. People in power like to keep power. There are certain folks in strategic positions. They're trying to keep their constituency happy, relatively happy, happy enough to keep them in position. And they're playing their cards and leveraging their deals and figuring out how to keep what they have. Sound familiar? And so that's the public space that Jesus is entering into. He doesn't start by campaigning for Herod's job as the king of the Jews. He starts at a wedding, turning water into wine. And so I want to read you this story, and I want you to think about why in the world would this be the first public engagement of Jesus as he's gathering disciples in this crazy political sphere that he's in. All right, here's, here's what it says in John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So he's just gathered these disciples, and he and the disciples get invited to the wedding along with his mom. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is, seems like a kind of a typical mom comment, right? Like, I'm sure he was aware that they had no more wine. That wasn't a mystery. And you can imagine Jesus' mom kind of walking by and going, they have no more wine. With the, some implication behind it, right? There's a, there's a statement in that statement behind it, and Jesus knows it. And so he says, which we would maybe consider disrespectfully, woman! I've never called my mom woman, and I don't advise that you do either, even though Jesus did it. Love you, mom. She'll be listening. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour or my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. She doesn't argue with him. She just says, hey, just do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, here's where my lot of wine comment is about to come in. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. So there's six of them, 20 to 30 gallons. Where are the quick math people? How many gallons of wine is that? Huh? 120 gallons minimum. Thank you, Chris. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's an important verse. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. It almost seems incidental, this story, right? These disciples are gathered publicly, maybe for the first time. They're at a wedding. Jesus is there. They run out of wine. His mom throws him a sidebar comment. He distances himself from his mom, making sure that she knows that his hour, the ultimate hour of his work on earth has not yet come. But then he goes about actually helping out the people who are throwing this party. And it's a huge deal because these families would have saved for years and years and years and years to throw an awesome party. And so the fact that they ran out of wine was hugely socially embarrassing. And so Jesus doesn't give them like a couple of bottles, right? He creates way more wine than from sure they needed. And he offers it to the family and says, you know, this will be for the party. I will help you not to be embarrassed and to provide for the party that you're throwing to celebrate this. He uses, he tells them to use these ceremonial jars. So just so you understand, these like big jars because the Jewish people had to make sure that their hands were clean before they eat. So there'd be these massive jars that were supposed to hold water that was clean for them to wash. So there's some important symbolism in this story. Jesus tells them, take the jars that are supposed to help everyone remain clean so that they can eat properly and fill them with party wine. Take the jars that are supposed to represent how the people of God stay clean and do what God wants them to do and fill them with wine. And later in John, we'll get this reference back to this miracle that clearly says that the wine represents the blood of Christ. That Jesus provides in an overabundance everything that the people in this party need and also everything that the rest of us need. His first engagement publicly is to not only help a family and listen to his mom, which are kind of incidental things, But to do this miracle that displays his power, displays the Father's power through him, and symbolizes that there is more than enough of Jesus' sacrifice for the whole world. This verse 11 articulates what John wants us to get out of this story. He says very clearly, what Jesus does here is the first of the signs that help reveal God's glory in Jesus. And it's how these early disciples come to start to believe in Jesus Christ. So let's think about this together for a second. The point of this first public expression of Jesus isn't to tell Herod to get in his place or even to challenge the authority of Rome in any significant way. The first reason for Jesus to do a public miracle is to reveal God's glory 
and encourage people to believe and trust in Jesus as the Savior. And I love this because I think it can really help us in the 21st century to start saying, are the ways in which God is inviting us to engage publicly, revealing God's glory and encouraging people to trust in Jesus? Those are some wonderful lenses as a starting place for us to to talk about going public in the 21st century. How do we see God engaging publicly today? If Jesus is engaging in this way, I don't think that Jesus is asking us to go and start trying to turn water into wine at parties, although some of you maybe have tried that. I think what he's asking us today is to, to say and understand for ourselves How is it that our identity as followers of Jesus can be made public in ways that help other people see how amazing God is and that they can have a trusting, believing relationship with Jesus Christ? That's for sure the primary thrust of Jesus' whole ministry. Politics are super important in that time, but he has a way of creating a third way that's mostly about him and what he's revealing to people about God. That doesn't mean he's ducking the politics, because he isn't. He ultimately gets killed for political reasons, right? He's not ducking the politics or the political conversation, but he's saying the dichotomies that you all have created, the either-or choices that you have created are the wrong either-or choice. It's not either Rome or Jewish independence. It's the kingdom of God. And man, if we need anything right now, it's Christians who can start to look at the public conversation and say, there is a kingdom of God way into these conversations. We should not allow people to put us in boxes of blue or red or right or left or right or wrong because that's not how Scripture defines us as followers of Jesus Christ. There are ways for us to engage in our political system, and we should do that. But we should never think of those ways as the starting place of our public identity, right? And so Jesus, I think, is inviting the church in the 21st century to rediscover its calling to be a a group of people who declare God's glory and invite people to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the church does this by by doing a few things. Jesus makes this clear. He says, the world will know who you are and they will understand me by how you love each other. If you love each other well, then I will become obvious to the world, not just to you. He says, the church will do this, will, will declare God's glory and invite people to trust in Jesus by giving up its life for the sake of its neighbor." By being willing to follow the way of the cross and say, my neighbor's life is as and more important than my own, how is Jesus leading me to give up my life for the sake of my neighbor and my neighbors? And finally, Jesus is saying to us, you will live, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Witnesses just means that people understand your public identity as a follower of Jesus in every sphere you're in. It doesn't necessarily mean standing on a street corner yelling at people. It means that every sphere, sphere, school, work, neighborhood, 
everywhere you are, you have a public identity as a Christian that declares the glory of God and invites people to trust Jesus with their lives. I'm convinced in this next generation, the church is not gonna be known by people outside the church for its doctrinal differences. People are not going to look and say, well, here's how the Presbyterians are different from the Catholics and the Evangelicals. That's not how people who are not already in church think about who God is and what it would mean to be part of a church. They ask the question, what are you doing with your life that displays and tells me who the God that you believe in is? Tell me what you're doing. Tell me what your practices are. Tell me what your experiences are like. Tell me what your community is committed to. And then I will have a reason to engage with you. Which is why it's so amazing to be part of a church where these two people can stand up here during announcements and say, listen all the ways that our community is doing something in a public way because of their identity in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Mill City Church has gotten more attention from people that aren't part of Mill City Church because of the way it's been engaged in what God has invited it into, not because we've been arguing well about doctrinal issues, as important as understanding Scripture and theology is. It's just not likely that lots of people in your life are going to recognize God's glory and feel like they might want to trust Jesus with their life based on how you vote in November. I really doubt that anyone's going to pay attention to how you voted and decide that God is, is, God's glory is real and they should trust Jesus with their life. I'm not saying voting's not important, it's critical, okay? But we're being duped into thinking that one singular vote in November is somehow gonna transform the culture. It's not. We've hired other people before. Some of them have been good, some of them have been terrible. There's a lot at stake, but not nearly as much as how you're engaging on a daily basis as a public witness to Jesus Christ. It's not close. And every day my phone tells me otherwise. God's glory and the role that Jesus plays in your life, God's glory is going to be revealed and people are going to trust in Jesus based on how you engage publicly on a daily basis. Is that making sense? And so there are times where I see us engaging publicly and I couldn't be more proud. I'm sure some of you feel like that too. And then there are ways sometimes that we engage publicly or we engage online and I go, really? Is this, is this how it is that we want to declare the glory of God? I want you to know like these things that we're doing on an individual everyday basis, they're not just throwaway. You sharing your opinions, you trying to be a public, publicly engaged, how you do that, H-O-W, how you do that is way more important than whatever it is that you're sharing. And it's absolutely critical in the 21st century that Christians start to become known as people who know how to engage publicly who stand up for what they believe, I'm not saying anything about that, but doing it in a way that declares God's glory and invites people to trust Jesus with their life. Going public means you understand your role as someone who has been called out by God 
receiving God's love and forgiveness into your own life and with your community, displaying God's glory to the rest of the world. That's what we are. We are means to God's end. So, let me close with this and I'll invite the band to come up. In what ways are we living as public disciples to help people believe, as John describes in John 2, that Jesus is God's son and they can trust him? Here's a couple of ideas for this week. This is gonna sound really simple, but for some of us it'd be really challenging. First idea, start by admitting that you're a Christian in your public spaces. Okay? How many people in your workplace would even know that you're a Christian? Some of you would say, everyone does. Some of you would say, no one does. Some of you would say, you don't even know what you're asking me to do. That's incredibly complicated and complex. I get it. But an easy first step or a simple first step would be to say, how would I become a public witness to my own faith by just letting people know that I'm a Christian? in my workplace and that my faith matters to me in my school or in my neighborhood. Second idea, eat with somebody that you're developing a relationship with and as part of the conversation, just tell them, I'm a Christian. Okay? You're sharing Chipotle, you're having a normal conversation about how your church scheduled a meeting in the middle of the Vikings game and how disappointed you are. And then just say, I'm a Christian. And they'll go, oh, really? Uh, why are you telling me that? <laughs> what, this is what I found. If I just say to some people, some of my neighbors, that I slip it in, like, oh yeah, well, at church on Sunday, this. Some people just feel really free. Like they, can, they go to church and they were terrified to tell you that. So now they're like, oh, at our church, da, 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 da. but they were never going to say that if you didn't open it up. Uh, and other people you can tell like oh there's a lot of resistance there but if you don't ever say anything you're never going to get into any kind of conversation where you might have the opportunity so start by admitting you're a Christian eat with some people make an awkward comment about how you're a Christian see what happens every way that you engage publicly this week ask two questions is this bringing glory to God two does this encourage people to trust Jesus with their lives? There's a lot more to be said about this, and we're going to have fun talking about it over the next couple months, but I think those are really two important starting questions. Uh, we're going to celebrate communion today. And if you're with us and you're visiting and you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to participate in communion. Uh, maybe the most public act, right, of Jesus' ministry is represented by this cross and his resurrection. Jesus didn't die in a corner. He didn't die privately. He died in the most public way possible to display once and for all God's love and forgiveness for us. So as we listen to this song and get ready for communion, I invite you to sit and say to the Lord, please forgive me for the things that I've done wrong in my life and help me to see how you want me to engage publicly. And then when you're ready, you just get out of your seat. You'll see a line of people. You come down here. You grab the bread, which is all gluten-free, and you dip it in the juice, and uh, you receive the gift of God, the salvation of God for your life. 
I'll invite the communion service to come down and I'll pray and then we'll start participating in communion. Jesus, we are so grateful for the courage that you had to act publicly on our behalf. God, encourage us in the ways that we're already acting publicly that are bringing you glory and challenge us in the ways that we're acting publicly that are not bringing you glory and and lifting up you in our culture and in our world. Make us people, Lord, who modeled after your son, bring you glory and show other people how they can trust their lives to the leadership of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this gift of forgiveness and salvation that you offer to us day after day, week after week, month after month, and we receive it freely today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.